my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with Tia Graham. She is an international speaker, best-selling author, and consultant on positive psychology. She has worked with dozens of global companies such as Goldman Sachs, Hilton Hotels, and Hewlett Packard. Um, she, she helped them elevate employee engagement and drive bottom line results. Prior to founding her company, Arrive at Happy, she led teams at luxury hotels in the United States and Europe for brands such as W Hotels, Weston, and The London. With multiple certifications in neuroscience, positive psychology, and employee retention, and over 14 years of leadership experience, Tia is widely regarded by business leaders in her field. Her insights have been featured in major media such as CNN, Forbes, and Fast Company, to name a few. Her new book, Be a Happy Leader, teaches her proprietary eight-step methodology on driving productivity and business growth through a culture of happiness. So welcome to From Embers to Excellence, Tia. I, I am very thankful that we were able to connect and I, I just want to say thank you for coming on and, and sharing your story. Of course. Thank you for having me. I look forward to, to getting to know you as well as we chat. Well, let's start off with uh, where you were born and raised and you know what your early influences were, like what did your mom and dad do? You got any siblings? Like that kind of thing. Sure, sure. So I was born and raised for the first decade of my life in northern British Columbia, Canada. So if you can picture a halfway point between Seattle and Alaska, um, middle of nowhere, the closest town was a 45 minute drive through the Rocky Mountains. We lived in a little log cabin. We didn't have a TV or a phone until I was five. Um, and my parents ran a ski area. Uh, you know, five minutes down the highway from where we live, this local ski area north, in Northern Canada ski area. And um, I have two younger sisters. Um, and during the summer, we would come down to Southern BC, you know, and, and spend time at the lake with grandparents and cousins and, and friends and everything. Um, so yeah, when I look back at that, I was, you know, pretty happy first decade or so. Um, the first really big challenge I faced in my life was around age 11 or so. My parents um, decided to separate and get divorced and we moved. We left Northern BC and, and moved down to Southern British Columbia and my mom moved out. And of course, this is very, um, I don't know what the word is, you know, unsettling, challenging, you know, for, for kids, anyone that's gone through family divorce and, um, my father uh, really didn't want the family to separate. And after he, he really, he's always been a sort of happy-go-lucky guy, but he was really unhappy during this time. And I remember thinking that maybe he wasn't going to be this happy person anymore. 
Um, but after a couple of years, he made the conscious decision to be happy again. And he actually told me it was on his birthday. I can remember the morning perfectly. He said, I've had two of the hor most horrible years of my life. And I woke up this morning and I decided I'm not going to have another bad year. And I saw him choose happiness and I saw him make choices to increase his happiness and to be more resilient. And so at a really young age, I learned that happiness was a choice and I saw my dad choose it, which was really, really powerful. So um, I grew up in, you know, Southern BC and, um, you know, other influences. I don't know. We, we, we skied a lot. We spent a lot of time outside. My mom is really athletic and well, I guess both my parents were so, um, you know, healthy and, um, you know, I would say sort of good food and, and being outside has always been a big part of my life. You know, from that point on, and I'm 42 now, just like everyone listening, I've had challenges. I've had, you know, good times, challenging times like all of us, but I've always known that I'm, that I design my own life, that I make choices to increase my happiness. And, um, it's always been really, really important to me. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Then I, you know, I, I could talk about career, but that's sort of, um, foundational, uh, about, about my upbringing. Where did you end up going to university? Yeah. So I started going to university in Calgary, Alberta. So in Canada, and I was studying business at this point, I was totally uninspired. I did not know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and through traveling and internships actually. So I'm American as well as Canadian. So I traveled a bunch of different places and I worked on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina one summer. And then I had this realization that I wanted to work in the travel industry and work in hospitality. So I ended up transferring from the University of Calgary to the University of Hawaii on the island of Oahu. And I switched degrees and I graduated with a degree in travel industry management and then went into a 15 year career in the hotel industry and worked in a lot of different places in the U.S. and also um, over in Istanbul in Turkey. So um, yeah, that's th those are the schools I went to. A little bit of Canada, and then thankfully uh, some more in graduating in Hawaii. That takes a lot of guts to to just do what you did. Like where where does that come from? Are you well? First, let me ask you this: You said you have two sisters, right? Yes. Are you the oldest, the middle, the youngest? Yes, I'm the oldest. Did you get this kind of, and well, I guess part of it is being the oldest, you know, having that sense of independence and, yeah. Um, but I mean, were your, were your parents pretty outgoing like that? I mean, I, yeah. Um, I mean, my dad definitely super extroverted and, and outgoing. Um, I, yeah, I'm the oldest of three girls. I'm also on my dad's side, I was the oldest of 16 cousins. So I always had, you know, this group of 10 or 15 that I, and, you know, I, I knew I was oldest and we would, you know, spend time with this big group of kids and then teenagers. So I definitely always had this leadership. I think part of my identity, um, and I've always been really extroverted and love people. And, um, you know, from traveling to places in the U.S., visit, visiting my American family and then traveling with my mom to Mexico where we went to Costa Rica or then I was working on Hilton Head. Um, 
I had this, I grew up in a pretty small, like once we left the ski area and we're uh, in the smaller part, um, anyway, where, where I grew up, I didn't grow up in like a big city or anything. So from these different experiences, I knew pretty early on that I was like, I don't want to stay in this, what I perceived as a town. It's there are 300,000 people, but I knew pretty early on, like, I'm not staying in this town. There's the world is bigger. I need to go do, you know, see other things. And, um, I also had a very strong drive for independence and for, uh, not necessarily accolades, but I would say financial success. Like I knew that, um, I just knew very early on that I was not someone that was like, oh, I'm going to get married and settle down. And, you know, my husband will take care of me. Like, no, that is not, I always was like, I'm going to be successful on my own. I'm going to create my own life. And, um, if a man comes along and, you know, wants to be on the journey that I'm on, that's cool, but I'm not going to change or, you know, stop my dreams for somebody else. So I think that I had that, uh, desire, that independence. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be successful and, and create my own journey for myself. So I don't know. I hope I answered that question. I mean, it, it's evident to me. And I, I think to most people that um, are the eldest of other siblings is that you're the one that makes all the mistakes first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I think it gives you a sense of, all right, well, you know, I might screw up, but I, you know, I can do this. And, and I'm just wondering through this, this growth period, you know, that, that got you on the path that you're on now, mm -hmm. are there any defining moments, um, any growth opportunities that, yeah maybe shape this for you yeah there's a lot um I, I can share a few so when I was a teenager and early 20s I definitely also um had a lot of fun I partied a lot I would you know go out with friends I was always super super social and um one pivotal moment was I was dating this older guy and a bunch of friends, we were whitewater rafting. This when I was living in Calgary. So I'm probably, how old am I? I'm probably like 19 or something. And um, he, after whitewater rafting, he actually cracked. I was in my car. We got into a major car accident because of his, what's the right word? Um, not great driving. And he totaled my car and I don't, he got a little bit hurt. I, I don't know how, but I walked away with like out of scrape, even though the car flipped and was completely smashed. And that was a pivotal moment where I was reflecting on, okay, what am I doing with my life? Who is this? Like, who am I dating? Like, cause I was just like, what a loser. What, you know, for that was like a, a, a kind of a cherry on the top of decision of like, you know, just this, this pause of like, I'm, I'm better than this. At the time I was kind of going to school, I was waitressing and I was just partying a ton. So that was one moment where I was like, no, I'm destined for better. You know, I, this is not, this is not the trajectory of my life, you know? And also I didn't have a car for a few years, which is a huge lesson. Um, so that's one. Um, 
Another was when I, I first became a leader. So I was leading a sales and marketing team for this hotel, the Sheraton Kauai Resort in the Hawaiian Islands. And I was super, even though I was working and I was, I was really successful at work, I was actually really lonely and unhappy because I was living in this Hawaiian Island. All my friends were in Honolulu. That's where I studied and everything. And, um, didn't feel balanced at all. It was sort of like all work and I was doing the career thing really well, but then yeah, other parts of my life weren't, you know, weren't super great. And so that was, and I have a lot of stories like this where I was like, okay, I'm not super happy. What do I need? What do I want? What do I need to do to, yes, you can still be successful in your career, but you also need to be happy in your, in your personal life. And so one of my friends had got a job in New York city. I went to visit her and I just fell in love with the city and I made it my, my goal. You know, I was like, I'm going to move to New York city. Like I want to, you know, and, um, through networking and, you know, making, you know, talking to people, meeting people, and also making, I think this is something I've always been really uh, well at is when I set my mind on something when I set my heart on something I let the like I'm I let my friends know I let my colleagues know I'm like I want to move to New York City I'm moving to New York City it was like I was just putting it out in the universe everywhere and I did I ended up getting a great job in New York City and and I was super super happy there just having this internal compass of what do I value what do I want and when things aren't aren't aligned not settling not giving up you know, knowing that you can make changes, that you're in the driver's seat. So I have a lot, I have a lot more um, examples, but those are a couple that come to mind. What you just said about knowing what you value, what, what your values are, having that sense of who you are and, and your own personal value. Is, yeah. I mean, that's pretty mature. That's not something that I mean maybe maybe it's different for women but for guys I, I think that you know it took me till I was probably 40 before I really knew what was super valuable to me <laughs> I appreciate your honesty <laughs> um but yeah I don't know about the gender I don't know about I I think that what I've always been very in tune with is how I want to feel and how I don't want to feel. And so, um, I know that I feel, I do not feel great when I don't spend a lot of time with my family. Now I'm married with kids, but you know, before my nuclear family, my mom, dad, and sisters, and you know, I've, I've traveled and lived all over in different places. And when it, it's go, when it's really long time periods and I don't see them, I know I don't feel good. So I have always, known that I need to come home. I need to be with family. And I also need to have family come see me because then I feel connected and I feel, um, you know, feel that love, et cetera. And, um, I've also, I don't know if I've never, I don't know if I'm empath or not, but I'm, I also have, I'm very aware of, I've always been very aware of other people's energy. And, and so, I've consciously surrounded myself with people who are positive, who are optimistic, who lift me up. And I hope I do that same for them as well. And when there's been times in my life or people in my life that, that do the opposite, that's always been very conscious and intentional of like, okay, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this person because 
they really pull me down. Of course, family members, you don't, you don't choose. Sometimes, you know, you, you spend time with family, even though they don't make you feel great. Cause that's sometimes what family is. Um, and then in terms of like career and growth and, you know, I, I was leading teams, finding people within either the big hotel company I was working with or friends or whatever that or mentors that I, um, knew very quickly, like, okay, they're successful and they're also a really great person. And so building relationships for people with people like that, because that's what, that's what I wanted too, right? I didn't want to be successful and be a jerk. Right. So it was like great with people and also really successful. So kind of aligning with people like that, I think has been really helpful too, but um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe the maturity comes actually back to what you're talking about earlier of just being an older child. And I think probably because of some of my childhood experiences, I had to grow up maybe a little bit faster because, you know, it was this two, two parent household, right? My sisters and I would go back and forth between my mom's house and dad's house. And I was the oldest of the three. So maybe some maturity came from that. I don't know. Well, you mentioned mentors in, in your professional uh, life who would you say had the most influence on your career and your professional development? And, and what were some of the lessons that you learned from them? Yeah. So the first person that comes to mind is this woman, Angela Bento. She is right now. She's a general manager for a beautiful hotel on Maui. And when I was going to university of Hawaii, I was her intern and for uh, six months, um, I learned so much from her. She's extremely brilliant and sort of, she grew up leading and, you know, there wasn't a lot of women leaders when, as was she was, um, as she was growing her career in the hotel industry. And um, after, after I graduated, I worked with her a little bit and she actually is the one who promoted me to become a director of sales and marketing. And I was only 26 years old. She saw so much in me that I like, she saw way more in me than I saw myself at that point. And I remember thinking, Oh my, like, is this a joke? How, how am I even getting this job this young? And I don't have this much experience, but she really took me under her wing. She taught me a lot. She was a boss, but really I, she was definitely, definitely a mentor. And, um, what I learned from her was, you know, I would definitely say self-belief. And then also, I mean, there's so many things, but another thing that comes to mind is, is resourcefulness. So she taught me that if you don't know something, if you don't have the answer for something, find someone who does, because everything is already answered. Anything you want to know in business or leadership or whatever you're trying to do. And now I'm an entrepreneur. So this is stuck with me is someone's already done it. Don't try and figure things out on your own. Find someone who's successful and learn from them. So um, yeah, that's that's a, a, a key for sure. Um, another person that comes to mind is when I was the director of sales and marketing for the W Hollywood Hotel. This is years later. And there was a regional director, this man named Dan King, who was my boss's boss. And um, we had really, 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 uh, involved owners and they had really high expectations. It was a very challenging property. Um, and Dan 
there were just, it wasn't like I spent tons of time with him, but there were just like tidbits. Like he would come in my office and be like, how are you doing? And, you know, I'd talk and I'd say, this is a challenge or this. And he would recommend books or he would say, think about this. And he would just leave me with, um, with pieces of information. And even though I didn't talk to him all the time, there were what he, whenever he would recommend something, I would say, okay, I'm going to listen to Dan because he was so much older, so much more experienced than me. He was successful. And I would, I would follow through. I think that's something that I've been, that I've done well is when there's someone that I really respect who's successful, that says to do something, says to read something, I do it. You know, I, I, I take it seriously. So those are a couple of mentors that come to mind. And then as an entrepreneur, um, someone that's been really influential is um, this gentleman by the name of Rory Vaden. I don't know if you've heard of him before, but connected with him through the National Speakers Association. He's an extremely successful author and speaker and entrepreneur, and he's a bunch of different businesses. And um, I just respect him as he's just a really good human being also. And so when he says to do something, I listen, you know, I am like, okay, Rory says it. I trust him. And I, um, I sort of believe that he wouldn't steer me wrong. So that's, that's a current mentor. And he's still one of my mentors. One of the things you said about your time at the, uh, the hotel in Hollywood was you had really, really, really involved owners. And I feel like that's a nice way of saying micromanaging owners. Um, and I think everybody has had to deal with those kind of leaders or managers or however you want to phrase it. But how did you, uh, how did you manage that? Because. Not easy, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. yeah. So I've actually been micromanaged by different people in Korea. And I've also had a lot of autonomy, um, but I, and this is actually a great um, leadership story. I think it's about self-leadership that I, that I talk about. One of the stories I share in my book is, so I was, I got to the hotel and this level of micromanagement, I had never experienced before. Um, to give you an idea, the asset manager who lived in Connecticut, of course, we're in Los Angeles. He would fly to the hotel every other week. Like, so basically every other week, it was like, we had two bosses. We had the general manager of the hotel and then we had the asset manager. Usually asset managers come quarterly to visit hotels. He was there every other week. He would be in our meetings. He would be, um, yeah, just, just there always questioning and, and everything. And um, in addition to that, and he was always in my office, he was always wanting to be in meetings with me and my boss. In addition to that, I had, two or three calls with ownership a week. So ownership is in the building. And then in addition, I have all these ownership calls. Um, and they took a ton of, all of it took so much time. They were asking for reports. It, it was like, when you weren't with them, they were asking for info. So it was a huge time suck. And I was new at this job. I had a team of, I don't know, 25 salespeople. And of course the hotel, when I got there, wasn't doing well. I was brought in of like, they wanted to turn the hotel around. I wasn't spending time with my team. So I actually got to a place probably three or four months in of burnout, like really quickly, burnout, overwhelm, stress. Uh, yeah, just, and I was working nonstop. And 
thankfully, my husband is also in the hotel industry. He was a general manager at a different hotel in Los Angeles. And of course I was talking to him about, I was like, this is insane. This is crazy. This is nuts. I can't, I'm like, no, I don't have time to spend with my sales team. And I need to be with my sales team to drive sales for this hotel, but the owners are taking all of my time. So there was, there was one night where I came home like late, probably 9 30, 10 PM. And I was like, I think I got to quit. Like, I don't, I think I can't do this job. This is way too intense. This is too much. There's a million hotels in LA. I can get another job. This is, they are crazy. I can't do this. And what my husband said was, um, they want you, you need to tell them how to make the job work for you. And I was like, what, what do you mean? He's like, well, they hired you. They brought you in, tell them what you need. And I was at, at the time I had never, this is probably 12 or 13. I, I'd never, I'd never like fit to people wait, like owners of hotels, they're huge commercial, you know, real estate, like tell them what I need. So I was like, okay, well, what do I have to lose? You know? So basically I, I, I took his advice and I went in and I met with my boss and I said, um, what, what is happening right now is, is not working. And, and if it's going to stay like this, you need to find a new director of sales and marketing. And I said, you know, I'm okay. If we do one weekly call, I'm okay. If we have a weekly meeting, that's fine. But these six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours a week, I can't, you know, I need to be with customers. I need to be selling. I need to be helping my sales team sell. That's I'm the director of sales. So if we, if you can't have them back off of me, then you probably need to find a new director of sales and marketing. And I couldn't honestly couldn't believe these words are coming out of my mouth, but my husband had gave me sort of that, I guess, you know, wind in my sails to say something like that. And they came back to me and and did it. They basically were like, okay, Tia, you don't have to be in all these meetings. We'll only call you once a week. You can have your time back. And I ended up staying at that property for two years. We were highly successful. We turned the hotel around. Like it, it was, um, you know, of course there were bumps on the road. It wasn't like perfect after that. But, um, I think if anyone listening feels micromanaged right now, you are valuable. You are in your job for a reason. You were hired for a reason. And, Sometimes just speaking your truth and saying what you need, because ultimately whoever's micromanaging you wants you to be successful. You know, they want you to beat your goals, whatever your goals are. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my micro, that's a micromanagement story. Yeah, that's awesome. I, um, <clears throat> I've got a few, uh, none of them turned out like that, <laughs> but just, I didn't have, uh, I don't believe I had the mentorship. Um, you know, like, it seems like you got some really good advice from your husband and mm -hmm. advice that I got was you need to read a couple of books on how to deal with micromanagers. And I, I don't think that I got good books because. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I think a lot of people get that advice, like just, yeah, just deal with it for the last five years, I research what makes people happy. I, you know, I'm a science of happiness researcher and I also research what makes people happy at work. And one of the number one ways to guarantee unhappiness is micromanaging. So if there's anyone listening that has one employee or 1000, you know, take a hard look at, is that happening within your organization? Because no human on earth 
likes to be micromanaged day in, day out. It's, it's, a, it's not a good feeling. Well, it's very telling that when you got there, it wasn't, the hotel wasn't doing very well. And it would continue on that course if they continued to micromanage the hell out of you. So uh, I guess they were wise in one sense that they actually listened to you and, and let off. Yeah, so, I will so. say there was a few, I think the hotel had only been open a few years and I was like the fourth director of sales. So that I think that helped because they were like, oh God, do we want to turn over another director of sales? You know, like, because obviously it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't working. They, they, it was clear that something was broken and thankfully they were able to look in the mirror and say, okay, maybe a little bit is us. The major part of your professional career was in and hospitality. Mm -hmm. And now you're you're speaking all over the place. You've got a best-selling book and uh, a lot of certifications. You're you're an authority on the science of happiness. What inspired you to to go that deep and to take this path that you're on right now? Yeah. So I first had the idea to create a happiness company around when I was about 30. So I'm 42 now. So about 12 years ago is I had this idea and I told my, it was my boyfriend at the time. Now he's my husband. And I was like, I want to have a happiness company. And the reason why I first had that thought was throughout my twenties, people would ask me on a pretty regular basis, how do you stay so happy? Where do you get this positivity from? Even when there's challenges, you're optimistic, you know? And so uh, and part of it is I now know, because I understand the science of happiness and neuroscience, I know that partly of it is genetic, like I'm genetically predisposed to be happy, but I, I also know it's my choices because uh, our choices are a lot of it. Um, but anyway, so that was sort of that first, but I didn't do anything about it. I sort of a journal a little bit like, okay, one day I'm going to help other people be happier. Fast forward, I am the director of sales and marketing for this beautiful hotel in the middle of Los Angeles called the London West Hollywood. And I had just gone back to work after having my second daughter. So I had a two-year-old little girl and then a four-month-old little girl. I was really, really unhappy. I was, of course, sleep deprived and exhausted because with the baby, you're still waking up multiple times a night. I was full of guilt. I had mom guilt, work guilt. It was like, I, you know, I, um, I was angry at the situation of trying to like juggle this huge career and then kids and marriage and my own health and French. I was just like, life sucks right now. Um, I was stressed. I was you just, I was, I was not happy. My identity of being a director, like so much of my identity was connected to being a director of sales and marketing because I'd been a director of sales and marketing for 14 years. And of course, when you meet people, you say, hey, what's your name? What do you do, right? And we say, I am fill in the blank, right? I am, a, I, and I would say, I'd said for 14 years, hi, I'm Tia, I am a director of sales and marketing. And um, I'd been, you know, successful. I had this huge network, et cetera. So the thought of not being a director of sales and marketing terrified me. Also, you know, I helped my husband with, LA is super expensive. My husband and I are both paying the bills. It wasn't like I was like, oh, I'm going to quit. And, you know, no, we were like living in LA. We had two kids. Like we had a big lifestyle that we were, you know, I ended up calling one of my friends, Galit, who I'd worked with when I worked in Manhattan. 
telling her how unhappy I was with everything. And she recommended that I call this coach, this life coach. And I had never even heard of a life. Like I didn't know anyone that worked with a life coach. I'd never heard about it. No one in the hotel industry talks about life coaches. And I was like, what's a life coach? I don't even, what it is. So long story short, I ended up calling her. I ended up hiring her. And on the very first call, I told her about this bit. I was like, I want to have a happiness company. And so uh, over the next like seven or eight months, I worked on this business plan of, all right, what could this, what could this company be? And I was researching happiness. And that's when I discovered that there's a science of happiness and found the world happiness summit. I actually just got back from it. I was there last weekend at the University of Miami and I ended up this, this, so that was in 20, I, I worked with my coach in 2016. So basically I built this company, Arrive at Happy on the side. I didn't just leave my job and say like, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I was studying at night after my kids went to bed and I was, you know, um, they became a certified coach myself and, and doing all of this because I didn't, you know, I, I had a really big salary. I, I got huge annual bonuses. I had benefits, you know, all of those things. So I wasn't, and I, I didn't want to just stop all of that. So how I did it was, um, yeah, little by little sort of on the side night. Sometimes I did stuff on the weekend. And then I got to the point in the spring of 2018, where I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I can quit my job at the hotel and revenues, you know, my, 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 my business was growing, but what I proposed to the hotel, I said, I'm, I'm either going to quit and do this full time. I said, or, um, let's promote someone that reports to me. And I will go part-time, I will decrease my salary, will increase her salary, the equivalent amount, so no extra cost to the hotel. And I just wanna work part-time, spend more time with my kids and, and crazy, they actually went for it, which is unheard of in the hotel industry. So for a year, I was a part-time director of sales and marketing, which sounds crazy even saying it. So anyway, I did that. That gave me more runway to build my company, but I still had a, salary coming in, but then it gave me even enough. So I did that for 12 months. And then I fully left my corporate job in the spring of 2019. What, what inspired you to write your book? And, and I really, really like it. If you talk about your, your eight step methodology. Sure. Sure. So, um, no, at the beginning I didn't really, well, probably, I mean, when I was working with my coach, I was brainstorming all different revenue streams of how could Arrive at Happy make money. And I had all of these different things in there, book being one of them. Um, I went to a Brendan Bouchard. Are you familiar with him? High performance coach. Yeah, I, I know the name. Um, I, yeah. I'm not real familiar with him though. Yeah, he's fantastic. He has his books and everything. He's He's the number one high performance coach in the world. Anyway. So I was at a Brendan Bouchard conference in San Diego in, I think the fall of 2019, sat next to, you know, there's a room of 32,000, maybe 3,200 people sat next to this woman. What do you do? Right. And she said to me, when I said, Oh, what do you do? She said, I help authors write their books in 90 days. And I was like, what? 90 days. Like that's fast. And she was like, yeah, like I'm a best-selling author. And so I was like, okay, give me your card. Like I'm going to keep your contact info. And, um, at, you know, at some point I was like, okay, I, I, I think most of what, what I do is I speak, I work with leaders. I do, uh, you know, 
leadership masterclass programs and executive retreats and everything. And I think after several years, I was like, okay, there's only so many people I can hit in a year. You know, even if I am, and I still have two little kids, right? Even if I'm doing everything, you know, my, the impact and who I can reach is limited because I'm this one human being. And I became really involved in the National Speakers Association and all the big people in the National Speakers Association have books. Everyone's got books. So I was like, okay, I think I need a book, you know, to help get my message out. And um, I ended up hiring this woman and in the yeah spring of 2020, right at the pandemic started actually is when I, I didn't know it was gonna be the pandemic, but I hired her and I um, worked with her and researched everything and yeah, did the whole thing start to finish really quick within the 90 days. My manuscript actually I did in seven weeks. And the, the reason why I wanted to write it is because in my hotel career, I had come across awesome, inspirational, motivational leaders that were happy and that drove results and that were just awesome people. And then I also worked with the opposite, people who were toxic, they were negative, they were micromanagers, you know, they were not great leaders. And so that was a huge inspiration for me was like, there needs to be more happy leaders. And then also um, from 2016 to 2020, I had been researching and doing different certifications on coaching or positive psychology, neuroscience. I became a certified chief happiness officer for happiness at work. Um, I went over into Denmark and got that certification. So I also was having this, this reoccurring thought of okay, there's all this amazing research coming out of Harvard and Yale and Stanford and Berkeley. Leaders need to know this information. You know, I, I'm learning this information in my late thirties. I wish I had this information when I was 18. Like everyone in the world needs to know the science of happiness. Everyone in the world who works needs to know what makes you happy at work. Anyone leading human beings needs to know what makes people happy while they're working. So the, the book and my eight steps are, it's a, it's a culmination of my experience as a leader in the hotel industry. And then also what I've learned along the way, um, running my company, Arrive at Happy. And so the eight steps are when I reflected back, cause I was, let's see, 40, yeah, I was 40 when I wrote it. So I was like, okay, if someone could hand me a book, like going back to that 26-year-old Tia at the Sheraton Kauai Resort who didn't know anything, you know, just got out of university, worked a little bit. Okay, yeah, I was, I'm, you know, innately happy. So I had that going for me. But, and now I'm 40. If I could take everything I've learned and say, if you do these eight things, you will not only be successful, you will make a lot of money. You will have a team that will never want to leave. And, um, you can also really thrive in your personal life. This is what I would do. And so I reflected back on that and, and Ashley, my writing coach helped me of like, okay, put this into buckets. If you know all of this, but what would, what would you call this? How would you organize it? And so that's how my eight step method came to be. So it's a combination of personal tools, like the science of happiness for yourself as a leader, business tools, and then leadership tools. I would love to to have you go through each step because it's got yeah. me, got me really curious. curious. <laughs> You're curious, good. And I hope, I mean, there's there's ebook, there's audio book, people can buy the paperback. And um, I'll tell you about the eight steps, but I say I'm a happiness practitioner. So in the book, and I have a workbook and everything goes with it, there's um, questions and prompts and tools to, okay, Tia's 
teaching this or I'm learning about this. Okay. How do I actually act on it? So with each of the steps, know that there's, there's actions. There's, I'm like, there's homework. You got to do this to actually don't just read about it, practice it. So the first step is start with you. And this step is how I prioritize my own happiness and how I, for the most part, consistently have a, a happy, I call it the happiness baseline, you know, and this is not pleasure. This is your day in, day out, your Monday mornings, your Thursday afternoons, you know, your just regular life of working and, and being a human. And I incorporate the science of happiness and neuroscience on what the research shows makes people happy because it, it starts with you. And the book's full of a lot of research. So before I go to the next steps, I will say that happy humans are more productive. They sell more. They're more creative and innovative. They are more, they are more successful in their marriage, in parenting. They, you live longer. There are so many benefits to prioritizing your own happiness and well-being. So I, uh, stop the myth of like, oh, focusing on your happiness is selfish. I'm like, no, it drives your business and your marriage and your, so anyway, that's, that's a piece on that. Uh, step two is zoom out. So this is a, a step that teaches people how to have a really wide, broad perspective and to look at business and to look at life, not just from your perspective. And by doing so, you cultivate really strong relationships with your peers in your work and your boss, because you're seeing, I basically say, no matter where you're working, you should look at the organization as if you're the CEO. You know, I was always in a sales and marketing leadership position, but I, I looked at it like, okay, if I own this hotel, you know, and so that really breaks down silos. Anyway, that's step two, zoom out. Step three is execute brilliantly. So I learned this step kind of later in my career. I wish I learned it earlier, but um, I learned about it when I became a mom became a parent. This step is my productivity efficiency hacks for lack of a better word on how to only work from eight 30 to five and to stop working at five and to not go back and do emails after your kids go to bed, basically how to be a ninja and get really crystal clear on these are the goals. And I say a happy leader doesn't work all the time. A happy leader exercises, sleeps a lot, goes on dates with their spouse, spends time with their kids. I ski, I'm living in Canada again right now, you know, hikes, whatever you like to do, travel, have fun. So that's, it's about brilliant execution so that you don't have to work all the time and to have boundaries and not, not spend time on things that don't actually drive your business forward. Step four is prioritize your relationships over to-do lists. So in this step, I talk about how I cultivated really, really strong connected relationships with every single person on my team so that they flourish and do their best work. And then as, I mean, that's what you want. If everyone on your team is kicking ass, your job's a lot easier. The next step is what I call your number one priority, which is your team. So how to create a really strong connected team where there's trust and psychological safety and honest feedback and vulnerability and friendship so that when a recruiter calls someone on your team and offers them $25,000 more, they're going to be like, no, I'm not actually going to leave because I don't know if that team is as good as what I have here. Um, step six is measure to excel. This is actually something I learned from Dan King, that mentor that I told you about. 
So this is about, as a leader, measuring the lead measures that drive your business forward and not focusing on the lag measures. So understanding what results are you trying to achieve and what needs to be measured on a weekly basis to achieve those results and have teach your team how to do that so that you always get your results. Step seven is um, be the spark. So be the spark is about protecting your own energy and always um, taking care of your mind, body, and spirit so that you have a lot of energy so that you can energize others. It's also about showing up positively positively and optimistically so that you motivate and, and inspire people on your team. Um, and yeah, just in the way that you communicate written verbal, uh, so that you are, you're just, you know, sparking light in other people. And then the last step is called master your mindset. And this step is about being in a space of always being an eternal student, never, ever feeling like, you know, everything and that you, you know, you don't need any other teaching or growth. It's like, no, you continuously learn and grow up until the year that you die, you know, be, be an eternal student. And, um, to have, I call this like a, uh, a bias towards innovation and, and, you know, curiosity of just always looking at new ways of doing things. Um, and I say as much as possible, always before you say no to anything, what if you said yes, you know, people would walk into my office, my boss or other hotel owners or would walk in with like crazy ideas. And in my head, I'd be like, what? But I'd pause and go, okay, like, what if we did this? What if, you know, so there's a lot of people that will close off other ideas um, or ways of doing things and think, no, I've already done that. So I say, well, what if you said yes? What, you know, and, and what if you were a colleague that was just open and, and tried things? So um, yeah, those are the eight steps. I know your book is available on Amazon, but if people wanted to have you come and speak uh, to their organization or um, link up with you, you know, connect with you on social media, that sort of thing. What's the best way uh, for people to connect with you? Yeah. So the best way, I mean, I have, um, well, I'll start. So my website is arrive at happy.com and that has everything about my book as well as everything, you know, that I offer to, to organizations if you want to just go straight to the book and learn all about that, there's a, um, you can go to happyleaderbook.com. Um, other ways are, um, I'm really active on Instagram. So arrive at happy on Instagram. I also have a large community on LinkedIn. Um, I have a leadership podcast called arrive at happy leaders, where I interview leaders that are driving results, but are just amazing people leaders as well. So that's if, if you want to kind of listen to other, you know, really great leaders that I believe are happy leaders in the world in different industries. Um, yeah. And then I have, I have a weekly YouTube channel as well. And I just started a TikTok channel. I have one TikTok. Everyone's been telling me to do TikTok. I'm like, okay, fine. So I'm trying that too. But yeah, arriveathappy.com is the easiest way. And, and all of your social media links are, are on there. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. Well, I will yeah. have a link to your your website um, <clears throat> in the show notes. This was a great conversation. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to, well, to share so much. I mean, you shared your, your story and, and a lot about your book. So 
for all those listening, you need to check out our website and, and buy our book. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I appreciate all the, the great questions and yeah, just being here. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.